It is for me a great privilege to be by our pastors entrusted with uh, so large a responsibility to have your hearts and conscience for these short minutes to share with you the truth of the scripture. And uh, certainly in life, there are many things I love to do. And if you knew me, the first thing you'd say is you love to plumb. You love to run a backhoe. You love to operate. A, you're right. You're right. I enjoy that. But there's nothing more precious than this privilege. And I thank the Lord for that. So would you with me pray this morning, my greatest I sin in on many in many times. But as I consider this responsibility of preaching, it's not without the great reality that I would seek your praise or long from for honor from you. That's what Paul said when he preached the gospel. His desire was whether it was with a stammering tongue and by Whatever means his own eloquence or wisdom would not hinder the gospel of the cross. So would you pray with me that very thing? I would hate for you to leave this morning with a thought. It was said well, but you don't know what was said. I would hate this morning for you to leave with any other impression other than this one. Jesus Christ is the greatest of all. And in him alone will I place my hope. That alone. Let's pray. Lord, we beg you this morning. For help as we strive to understand the greatest of all gifts given to us. Your people. In jars of clay we've been given this great opportunity. To hold forth the word of life. To those who, like ourselves, were under your condemnation. But because of your grace, taught us in your scriptures, we, by the gift of faith, have taken our hands and embraced the one who stood for us, who alone could save. What a privilege. And this morning, again, we pray, make him known. Make him known not only in these words, but make him known in the hearts of your people. May they again afresh and anew fall in love with the lover of their soul. With the one who they'll spend all eternity with. Admiring his beauty. Might we see just a glimpse of it this morning. Might we again be set on the path. And be reminded like the Ephesian church was reminded. They love doctrine, but left their first love. May we come back. May we delight in the teaching. But may we delight in the teacher. May we rejoice in salvation. But might we delight in the one who purchased it, in whom it comes to us, and who embodies it, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray this in your precious name, Lord. Meet with us, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Muhammad Ali, many of you know, some of you are too young. But he would always say, I am the greatest. You remember him. He made an impression on many. 
And what he was saying by that statement was this. Measure me against the men who have been in my position and see if my ability and my skills and my record don't stand above all others. Do they? Do they? But are not men in every generation tempted to make some claim like this? The danger of it is, not only are they tempted to make it, we long to be in their position. And we very likely in our own lives have through the years and maybe as we sit on this pew struggled with the reality of admiring men in places and positions which carried us away from the truths of exactly who the greatest actually is. Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, How in the world can you delight or desire the praise of God when you love the praise of men? Are you less tempted with that, my friend? Oh, no. So we can say 500 years ago was a skirmish in the life of an epic battle which began in the garden. The promise in seed form in Genesis 3.15 we saw come to fruition in Palestine some 2,000 years ago. Men lived prior to that day with hope of its coming. We live with the reality of it having occurred. All by faith. All by grace. This morning my desire is as men we said here and as we look into history, we're reminded those people sat there gripped by many things. But one of them wasn't the greatness of Christ. It was the greatness of others. If in my testimony I can say something like this, I stand amazed in the presence of a boxer, an athlete, an actor, a politician, a preacher, a priest, a pope, an angel, Abraham, Moses, or yes, even Mary. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians that I've been blinded by the God of this age who blinds the minds of the unbelieving in order that they might not see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The face of a man can and will and has. Blinded, it cataracts us. From seeing his glory. That's the challenge for us this morning. If it indeed is Christ alone. I must know him in his fullness. I must be growing up into him the head. We're remembering the great victory of the gospel that occurred that 500 years ago. We're celebrating the truths which were rediscovered. But let us not think that merely 500 years ago it was over and done. The devil has for these many years been about this very reality. If he could add circumcision to the work of Christ like he did in Galatians, he can destroy the gospel. And Paul could say, it's another gospel. If he could add Mary to the help of the Savior, he can destroy the gospel. If he can cause you to gather up your change and run down to Tetzel and buy an indulgent and help you give some kind of sense of confidence about your forgiveness 
He's destroyed the reality of who Christ is. And he's destroyed the gospel. You see, it's ultimately not the Catholic Church. It's the enemy of our soul. The enemy of the one that created the world. And his name is Satan. And he's always been about this business. Academia, church life, none of those things will stop what he's about. And so we just simply see another evidence of him going about his business of deceiving and us being deceived. This epic battle between God and his enemy will continue on, we know. There is the promise made us in Revelation of which we have great hope in that one day the King of kings and Lord of lords will return. He will deal the final and fatal blow forever. Satan will be banished to the lake of fire. But here's my question. What about now? What about now? What about for you and for me? An interesting Event in the life of the apostles as Christ took them to himself, chose these 12 men. He, they were able to watch him live, sleep, eat, do life and ministry, stand on the front of the boat and still the storm, raise a man who'd been in the tomb for days, heal the blind man, stand against the Pharisees. But they were men. They heard in the community, who is this guy? Who is he? So one day he took them to the very north of Palestine, got them away from everybody because his next journey was from there down to Jerusalem. He was going to be crucified. So as he gathered his band of apostles, he looked at them and said this, who do men say that I am? They looked up and said, some say you're John the Baptist, others, a prophet that's been resurrected, etc., etc. Then he asked this most important and probing question, one that I think for us this morning is vital to answer. As if he were looking to each of us, who do you say that he is? Who do you say, he asked his apostles, that I am? What have you seen all of these years. What do you understand about me? That's the question we must answer this morning. If indeed in the discovery during Martin Luther's time, the rediscovery of the great truth of the scripture, that Christ stands in our stead and he alone is the one, is that what you think? Or is he more like George Washington? Or maybe a character in a comic book? You believe about him. But if you were asked to define who he is, what would you say? <clears throat> That's the question I think Hebrews 1, chapter 1 through 4 answers. Here's the tragedy of the day of Tetzel, the day of the Pope and the church, and what we understand as Martin Luther's great experience 
bringing people back to this reality. It was the leadership in those days who sought to control people and the only way you can control a man is with a lie. If to know Christ is to know freedom, you cannot preach Christ and expect to control people. If the church would control its congregation, it must do so with something other than the freedom that's in Christ. But when Martin Luther saw Christ and the embrace of faith through grace, he was a free man, free from the fear of others. Free to die at the stake or a cross. What do you do with men like that? So it was sad that the leadership and the spiritual leaders of the day carried men to a polluted stream and told them there to drink. They came up from that polluted stream more polluted. They found no victory over their sins, but rather captured by it. They were willing to do anything, even to pull out their billfolds to try to be delivered. Is it not the same today? Are you not thankful that your pastors stand in this place and carry you to a stream that flows with living water that wells up into you life everlasting? They have no desire to control you, but rather to point you to the King of glory. There is freedom in that reality. There is only bondage in any other. If this church ever ceases, and think not that it couldn't happen because it could. To control men. Tell them a lie and grip them by fear. To set men free. For the glory of Christ, tell them the truth. May God this morning help us to see the truth. There are a group of people that are sitting here that I fear greatly. We look at these folks who ran to Tetzel and others. You're sitting here and you're not running to anybody. You're not even willing to pull out your billfold to find forgiveness. You have no sense of a need of forgiveness. In your present state, Christ will be nothing in the way of glory. You're comfortable and confident in your sin. The most dangerous of place to be. If you knew yourself, you would cry this with Paul. Oh wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? At least in their day, they were running trying something. The sadness was Tetzel offered them the wrong thing. And in their midst of seeking, wouldn't it have been a fresh voice to say, Luther cries, Christ is enough, drink of him. You sit here confident in your sins. I pray this morning God wouldn't let you, through this sermon, leave the same way you came, comfortable in the things you're doing, seeing no need and no reality of the condemnation and the wrath of God that rests over your head. As the former Puritans used to say, you're hanging over hell. On merely the spider's web thread. What a picture of your situation. So this morning, would to God that you would see your great need. And this was the statement of the reformer Luther. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be. 
Hebrews 1, chapter 1 through 4 says exactly and answers this question with eight observations from it. If you would look with me there. Who is he? Who is he? As we approach this chapter, you must realize to whom it's written. It's written to the Jewish people who had embraced Christ, who are now wrestling with some realities. They were being persecuted. So in the moment of their persecution, were they willing to give up Christ and go back to their old way? Chapter 1 assumes his humanity. Listen with me. It was this reality that the Jewish Christians were struggling with. It assumes his humanity. Those in that day realized he walked on the streets of Palestine. They realized that he experienced hunger and thirst and all of the things that they experienced. How could he be God? How how could he be the one? How could he be the greatest? Not only that, but he died. He died at the hands of the Romans. He died in the most heinous way. He died stripped and naked on a cross that was cursed. How? How? How could he be our Savior? So wrestling with that reality, being clouded by the arguments of the day, being rejected by their neighbors, their friends, and their family, they had to answer this question. So I'm encouraging you at this moment, clothe him in flesh and bones and stand him right there. He was a man. He was a man. Just like they saw, he was a man. Fully, completely man. And the writer of Hebrews said, and as you watch him, you add this to his frame. You add this to his frame. If you ask of me to come to your house and operate on your knee, I would have some tools that could access that knee. But when we were done, You would have been best to read my resume before you called. There are some doctors here that would have been better off to call. But if you have a gas leak or your toilet stopped up, you got the right man. What am I saying by that? Your resume is critical. So was his. It's right to ask the question, who is he? It's right to ask that question. The Bible does everywhere, never backs up from it. It was the very reason as he came, he displayed who he was. So the first statement made in Hebrews chapter 1 was this. That I want to point out. In these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Lest we misunderstand that statement. Know with me quickly what that would mean in the ears of any Jew. Would you understand your Bible? Then it's vital to understand that. What does it mean, his son? It would have meant this to that Jew who heard that. If you would search your scripture, you would find that that word would indicate that the son was equal in every way with the father. It was the very reason that the Jew in John 5 and 18 said this. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. Making himself equal with God. 
When you see this statement in Hebrews 1, you must understand. He has spoken to us by His Son. The Jew would understand quickly. That's deity. It was this reason that Jesus found Himself in such peril with the people that He came to save. He came to His own and His own received Him not. Why? As they picked up stones to stone Him, He said, for what good work do you stone me? He said, not for a good work, but because you claim that you're equal with God and you are a man. That's what they said. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The word Son would tie directly with that verse. Every attribute held dear by any Jew about God would also be confirmed on anyone called the Son. You see, they wrestled with that. He claimed that. And the writer of Hebrews declared that. He's not just like everyone else. And you must understand the way the Jew thinks. Have you ever known of an angel to get caught by a Roman cohort and get crucified? Have you ever known a man, be it Ali or another, who would dare ask an angel into the ring to even consider a fight? Of course not. It would be a foolish thing. We have no record of an angel dying. They struggled with that. An angel. Secondly, as we understand the writer, as he says this about the Son. The first thing, he assumed his humanity. The second thing, he was his son. The third thing, he was heir of all. For Jew, that was a big statement. He was appointed the heir of all things. You see, what the writer was striving to do was take the one who walked in Palestine, who was clothed with flesh. Now you're dressing out the reality of who he is. You're putting him in the right context. You're helping to understand exactly who he was. The writer says, look at him. In the court of heaven, God appointed him the heir. Man. Just what did that mean? John MacArthur says in Revelation 5, it's what's going on right there. And if you can read that and you're in love with Christ without sending chills down your back, something's certainly wrong. If you know the passage, it's the one where as John watches the throne and the one sitting on the throne held the scroll wrapped with seven seals and it was everyone was looked upon and said, who can take it out of his hand? There was none found worthy. John began to weep and cry. And the angel said, hold on, don't worry. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has been successful or victorious. And he saw, as it were, a lamb that was slain as he walked across the ground 
to take from the hand of the one that sat on the throne the title deed to everything. It's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. He was appointed heir of everything. It's all his. It would tie the mind of the Jew to this verse in Psalms. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell in it, it would really with them reverberate this reality. When you hear his name, do these things come to your mind? He's the heir of everything. There's nothing that's not his. Notice next about this one that the writer of Hebrews is helping us to understand exactly who he is. It says he is the creator of all things. Now, we understand in some sense what just that means. And from this pulpit on many occasions, you've been given many statistics about the sun and the moon and the body and every other thing. And you'll sit there amazed at the statistics. And they are gripping and they are certainly amazing. But is that the way in the morning you pray? Is that the way you go to work? Is that the way you stand beside your little daughter or son's bed of sickness? And is that the way you think of Christ when you live your life? That's the important part. The statistics are vast and amazing. But their purpose is to draw us into the trust and commitment to this one standing in this body who was given for our sakes. Who at one point in eternity spoke time into existence. John MacArthur says of this verse, not merely the cosmos is in the aim of the writer, but everything that's involved in everything, time, space, matter, things visible and invisible. It helps us then to understand Job's conversation with God. When God said, sit down, son, I want to ask you a question. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who asked him that? It was the one that we bow to and call Christ. He laid the foundations of the earth. When you sing to the greatness of the glory of Christ, these thoughts ought to come to your mind. God through Christ created all things that are and that do exist. It would place Christ right in his right place. So then what of the studies of our day? Are you high school students or middle school students? Go to school with a desire. Science declares his glory. Mathematics declare his handiwork. History, the story of his providential dealings with the nations. Sociology, the intimate activity of his own personal person in humanity. That's a reality. That statement clearly indicates the very thing that the writer seeks to help us understand. Our problem is not making too much of him. It's making too little of him. If I make too little of him, then I can sit Mary beside of him. If I make too little of him, Tetzel can confuse me with an indulgence. If I make too little of him, I can think of the need for purgatory. But if I see him in his fullness and his greatness, those things fade in their heretical position 
into the right place. That's the reality. And if as the writer of Hebrews continues to declare and we embrace, life becomes for us so much a fullness of the color of God. The hues are beautiful, are they not? Notice now not only the things in which he has accomplished and done, but his person. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Who would ever claim to have this set of themselves? Would an angel stand up in the midst of this testimony of the Hebrew writer and say, that's me? No way. Would Michael the archangel ever claim such a place? Would Gabriel ever think himself of such material as this? Not on your life. Imagine someone taking this testimony about themselves. <clears throat> exactly then, what does it mean? And the writer is getting at it's this reality. His person is divine. The radiance spoken of here is a light that goes forward. Would he be considering or thinking of the sun? You and I have never seen it. We've only seen the radiance of it, the beams that hit the earth that come from the sun. Certainly it could be that. But we know that Christ himself said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. One with the Father, yet distinct in person. That's who we're looking at and who's standing here. Is that what you think about him? Or is it something like this? You pray to God and also to Christ. But Christ is a little bit lower than the Father. The writer of Hebrews says, no way. He is exactly the same imprint of the nature of God. Every attribute that could be said of God could be said of Him. As He laid in the manger as an infant, nourished by Mary's breast right there, He was fully God. Without beginning or ending, Never did he cease to be what he's always been. That's what he says. If you would see me, he would say, you've seen the Father. Thomas said it would suffice us. Let's just see the Father. Thomas, have you not seen me? That should be sufficient enough. You've seen the Father. So as you work that out in your daily life, these are not theories to be debated in the schools of academia. These are truths to be embraced by every believer of Christ, to be lived with on a daily basis, to be mulled over and considered. Squeeze the juice out of them as you live your life. Drink this nectar that you might live a fruitful, faithful, joyful existence in this world. That's the purpose, isn't it? That's the reason for these writings. <clears throat> now we come to this reality, one that a faithful science teacher that I had in Bible college loved. He upholds all things by the word of his power. I thought and tried to consider an illustration. He's the gray tape of all things. How many of you know what gray tape's for? Whenever everything else fails, use gray tape. He's 
Gorilla Glue, whatever you want to use, whatever way you understand it. The reality of it is this, everything that exists finds its order and composition in Him. As the philosophers of the world wrestle with that truth, as our own government builds a super collider, as everybody tries to figure out how does this thing hold together, what in the world makes it have its existence all in the right order, how can we in the morning get up, set our clocks by the time the sun rises. Hebrews and the writer of it says, because of him. Can you imagine thinking that as you watched it? But no, do you think that now? Are you gripped by the fact that nature runs by laws? Are you free to realize that the laws run by Christ? That's the truth of this passage. Evolution would seek to strip us of the understanding of exactly who Christ is in all of His glory. If we accommodate the teachings of the world, we will lessen the view of our understanding of the greatness of our Redeemer. You see, He could have left this verse out. The Holy Spirit could have said this will be a little controversial, especially in the 21st century. Men don't think like that. They've come a long way. If you make them think that way, they'll not have him. Friend, nobody would have him were it not for the Spirit of God moving on your heart to see his beauty. But if you have him, you got all of him. Everything about him. Not parts and pieces and bits and sections and this and that. It's the whole declaration of his person and his work that we embrace. <clears throat> Think of the angels. Their own existence owes their dependency on his word and power. We are completely and totally dependent on him. You see that? Men hate that, don't they? We all do at one point in our life hate the reality that we're totally dependent on who He is. I can't eat, exist, or live without Him. Even though I hate Him, the doctor who'll get up in the morning and go perform abortions is totally dependent on Him. Totally dependent on Him. And thinks nothing of it as He gets up and goes off to work. But we sat here with the realization that we are completely dependent on Him. And we delight in it. It's not something that causes us to be pushed away. But rather just the opposite. We delight in that reality. That we are totally. He upholds everything by the word of His power. Now notice, after all of these things clearly presented to us about who He is. <clears throat> the appointment of the Father. Now notice his purpose in his coming so that the Jewish people would clearly understand and that we would clearly understand. When he had made purification, and I would ask you, and I think this verse is very clear, when we see the statement, Christ alone, just what does that mean? Who could help him in that moment? Who could come and assist him? In, you remember in the wilderness the angels came and helped him on Calvary's cross, they could not. 
They, like the father, had to turn their face away. There was nobody to help him. Can you imagine adding anything to that? When at the moment of his greatest need, angels and friends and foes alike had to turn. Even the father in that moment. Nobody could help him. Do you understand the depth of that? even think for a minute that a man need go to purgatory or to walk an aisle and pray a prayer or do something other than merely cry out in trust and faith to the one who by himself paid the price. His purpose spoken by the angel was to save his people from their sin. The warning given to Simeon there that by Simeon to Mary was that a sword would pierce her heart. As she watched the one she loved die on Calvary's tree. As we said here, understanding this word purification, it's a cleansing, it's what occurred at Calvary, it's what could not be added to nor taken away from. He completely and by himself purged our sins. That's the statement of this verse. Calvary was no defeat whatsoever. And it is our greatest victory. When he hanged naked and exposed and alone and with a crown of thorns misunderstood by the soldiers and others, it was for us. Our greatest moment of victory. Our king had won once and for all. And he was by himself. No one could help him. No one was fit for the job. You see all the previous things readied him for this moment. Prepared him for the sacrifice. That only he could accomplish. Now, what? As the writer closes, he makes these statements. He ceased. If you work for me, eight hours, you better be standing. When you go home and you're done, what can you do? Sit down. If you work for anyone else, and they come and find you at an inappropriate time, setting you've made a statement the time to set is when it's over what does that statement mean it was time to set because as he cried on Calvary's cross to tell us it is finished to add to that is a horrible blasphemy one which Paul called down the greatest curse in the book of Galatians, you add to that amazing act of sacrifice. Paul said, I call and a curse to the one who would add to that. But this one you see, after having made by himself the offering and sacrifice for sin, he ascended heaven and was seated. It was finished. Where did he set? 
Was he on the back row? Was he on the left hand? No. You left-handers might be offended by this. Sorry about that. But the right hand in the Bible means the hand of strength, power. He sat down on the right hand of God. He didn't take his place up in heaven with the choir. He didn't take his place with the seraphim, with his head covered and his feet covered. He walked to heaven with that crucified body. Victorious as he entered heaven's gates. And he sat down on the right hand of God, unashamed, unembarrassed, full of power and glory and might. Can you imagine if you were an angel and watched him enter? Never a king in all of his pomp and glory ever came into a city victorious like this king just entered heaven's gates. Can you imagine what heaven was like when the king came back victorious? Defeated his foe, made his enemies his friends, and saved a multitude which no man could number. And did it without the help of another. And did it completely and nothing could be added to it. That's what the writer indicates when he says he was seated at the right hand. And he uses this statement of the majesty on high. He didn't go sit down beside Michael or Gabriel. He went and sat down beside the throne of God. That's a place no man would ever dare sit. Can you imagine you walking into the White House, jumping the fence, going through the gate, telling the guards you're going to sit by the president? I don't think so. And he's a little man. Get the picture. You dare not enter the place of a king. You dare not take up the responsibility of thinking yourself right to sit on his right hand. You dare not do that thing. He did. He was worthy. He was the one. So in that day in the dark prison when John the Baptist found himself at his lowest point, possibly hungry, neglected, and the reality of his soon coming death right on the verge. This man preached and Jesus said of him, There's no man born of woman like John the Baptist. In that moment when he heard the testimonies about Jesus, he's Beelzebub, he's breaking the Sabbath, he does this, he does that. John sends his disciples and said, Go see if he's the one, or do we look for another? So his disciples went to Christ and said, John wants to know. Are you the one? Are you the one? Or do we look for another? And he said, quoted Isaiah and said, go tell him. Can you imagine? As he sat there. I don't know exactly how long before he'd lose his head. But when they came back, they told him. His heart welled with great truth. He's the one. He is the one. What about forgiveness? 
Can you make that statement? Is he the one? Or are you looking for another? You see, 500 years ago, they were looking for all kinds. And they found nothing. Broken cisterns. Polluted waters. And thank God for grace in that moment. And the man raised up for the purpose of calling men back to Christ. And so this morning, I would ask you with all sincerity, do you sit here without concern for your sin? God help you. If you sit here and you've been running after the cisterns of the world, you're thirsty, polluted. He will cleanse you. And if you're His already, He will renew and refresh you. Drink of this water of life freely. He came to give it Himself. Let's give thanks to Him. Lord, we bless You for Your mercy. Thanking You for Christ our Redeemer who alone can save. Lord Jesus, press on us and put us in a place where we drink from that fountain of living water. We never leave it for a broken cistern. We never go to another. He alone is the one. Lord, bless, we pray, your people. Save those who are here without you. In Christ we plead. Amen. stand and respond. Come on, church. Let's sing of our all-sufficient Savior who finished His work. Christ is enough, and we trust in Christ alone. Amen?
Thanks very much, Keith, for delivering your soul and opening this amazing passage of Scripture about our amazing Savior. If any of you feel deeply troubled about the state of your soul and know you need help and could possibly be helped by a pastor who would just talk with you and pray with you, please seek us out. Two of us are here. Pastor Mark preached on grace alone this morning at a Baptist church in Whitesville. So Pastor Keith and I would love to spend time. And there are others who could help. So take that offer. I just want to race through these announcements. I must. It's my obligation. So I'm going fast. Most of the ministry teams are trying to figure out who should join them and help in the year 2018. So consider being willing to be helpful. There are three teams that need help. Nursery, special events, and third Sunday setup. So for nursery, see Chris Houston. For special events, see Brandon Boswell. For third Sunday setup, see Keith Withrow. Uh, this Wednesday night, the meal is going to be nachos. It's a wonderful time. It's a free meal. And we have great fellowship. And if you can stay, join a wonderful time of prayer. We're looking at an amazing film, uh, a video series right now for part of that time. Sign up in the lobby if you can come this Wednesday. Uh, Net Rowe will be there to, to help you. Our sister Nancy Chapel, who is brought here almost every Sunday, needs transportation to get here, and we'd like to have uh, that spread out. So if you're willing to be a part of that, uh, please talk to um, Joe LaCour or Tim Hoke. Next Sunday's our quarterly fellowship meal. That's another complete meal on the church. Stay after church. Enjoy that meal together. Um, it's being announced as a reformed lunch. I don't know what that's about, but we're going to find out. <laughs> so uh, please come next Sunday. And finally, we have a men's retreat coming up November 10th and 11th at Rough River. Jim Golly is helping to organize that. Uh, you need to sign up. Please talk to Jim Golly about that. And now I leave you with this blessing from God's word. This is, the, this is the good word, the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. We are dismissed. <laughs>